Thank you, Pastor Brett. Before Pastor Lane brings the message today, if you would open your Bibles with me, we are going to be in Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. The man was intimate with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that Whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. God. All right. That's a heavy passage, huh? Good morning. My name is Lane. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in week three of four of our vision series, Following Jesus from Fear to Love. So our team has been praying and discerning for the better part of a year, uh, uh, trying to discern and, and pray through what God seems to be up to in our community and the dream that he has given us, what's standing in the way of that dream, and how he's called us to respond. And through this process, what's emerged is something called the narrative. We're going to go ahead and throw that up on the screen. We have a dream that one day all people in our community would be fully embraced, fully transformed in Christ. But the problem is our world is driven by fear, and thus we create cultures of division, isolation, and shame. That is why we exist, to foster a community following Jesus from fear to love. Friends, in a culture that, in my experience, is slow to listen and quick to speak and quick to become angry, in a culture that is highly anxious and reactive and divided, we believe that Jesus has a better way for us. So we're committing to follow him out of our fear-based cultures and into his love. 
So in this series, we've been unpacking the four values of the how. How do we get from fear to love? And we started week one with holistic spiritual formation. We'll go ahead and throw that circle graph on the screen. We took a look at John 15 and how Jesus invites us to abide in the vine, to abide in him, and to be transformed by his love, to be formed in his likeness. And the next week, last week, we looked at generous belonging. We talked about what it looks like to become the kind of people who are actively seeking to serve those whom our culture may intentionally exclude, but whom Jesus would prioritize. And this week, we're talking about humble peacemaking, which for many of us may be the most challenging aspect of this vision. Because when we commit to a life with Christ, we become part of a new humanity and we become part of a new family to which we generously belong and we extend generous belonging to people who act, behave, think, vote, communicate differently than I do. And when that happens, there can be tension, right? It's like those extended family holidays, yeah? When you spend enough time with the family, some of that stuff starts to come up to the surface, right? You think about that long Thanksgiving weekend that you spend with some relatives, yeah? Uncle Phil and Aunt Beatrice are using your bathroom and they're leaving their stuff all over the place. The oldest kid has to sleep in the living room because grandma and grandpa are sleeping in their bed and it's too small. There's a list of subjects that we know not to bring up around Uncle Peter because we know that he'll freak out about it, right? So many people, even in our own family, even with people who are connected by their very DNA, there is a lot of difference in how they live, how they believe, how they behave. But they all come together time and time again. Why? Because they're family. There's something that takes precedence over their preferences, over their disagreements. Now take that illustration and multiply it by a factor of 10. And theoretically, that's what it's supposed to be like for you and me. We, all of us, when it comes to the love of Christ, are bonded together in ways that are stronger than blood. We are all God's children. Even though we are all of us unique and different from one another, there is something that calls us to a greater unity, and that's the transformative love of Christ. So we're called to live at peace with one another. In Paul's letter to the Christians living in Rome, he writes, so long as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Which is great, Paul. That's fine. Until you realize that the enemy has used sin and pride and fear to drive wedges between us and to drive wedges between us and God. So we actually, from this, we understand that peace is not going to occur on accident. If peace is to be here on the earth, it must be made. Peacemaking is very important to God. Jesus tells us in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called God's children. So what is humble peacemaking? If we're going to talk about it, we should talk about what it is and what it is not. First of all, what humble peacemaking is not. It is not peacekeeping. Peacekeeping is passive, right? It values the status quo. It doesn't like to rock the boat. It will let things slide. It will let things go. It will avoid conflict. It'll settle for injustice just so that things don't get too rowdy, right? And I'll be honest, that's where I usually go in times of stress. I don't like conflict, but that's not peacemaking. That's peacekeeping. If it's not peacekeeping, then what is it? Well, it's the hard work of reconciliation and forgiveness. 
Peacemaking doesn't happen by accident. It requires intentionality. And it can be comfortable, uncomfortable, excuse me, to move towards one another in those times of tension. But that's what it is. What else is it not? Well, it's also not uniformity. It's not an army of clones who behave and think identically. It's not uniformity. It's unity. It's harmony between us and God and us and one another. That's what this word shalom, the Hebrew word that we translate as peace, that's what this means. Right standing between us and God and between us and one another. It's harmony. Any musicians in the room? Reluctant or willing? (laughs) Taking piano lessons? We aren't always playing the same notes on the piano, but if we embrace the fact that it's our differences which actually add to the richness of what we're playing, we receive harmony. Different notes playing together in the same key. Some of them are even dissonant when you play them just by themselves, but in context, it makes everything more nuanced and beautiful. We may be playing different notes, but we're all playing in the same scale, the same key. We're playing in the key of Jesus. That's cheesy, but it'll stick. (laughs) What else is it not? It's also not self-righteous. It's not self-righteous. It doesn't assume that I'm going in with the highest score, that the goal of this interaction is for me to be more right. It's humble. It's humble. It's not seeking a debate. It's not seeking to win an argument. It's seeking to win a relationship. Humility acknowledges that between two people in a conflict, there may very well be blind spots that I have that are contributing to the tension, and maybe I need to actually repent. Maybe I need forgiveness. Now, all these principles are based in Scripture. We're going to unpack it as we go shortly. But friends, I think we need more humble peacemaking in our world, don't you? Don't you think we've had enough of the anger, enough of the vitriol and the pointless debating and the polarization and the echo chambers? Our world is ready for a different kind of presence in our schools, in our homes, in our workplaces, on social media. I think what Jesus has to offer us, this peace, this shalom, it's hope. This is reconciliation, it's forgiveness, it's harmony with one another. It's unity between us and God. Our world is driven by fear, which is why we're not going to stay there. We're going to follow Jesus out of that fear and into his love. You know, Jesus shares with the disciples in John 13 that the way that the world will know that he is follower, that they are followers of him, is by the way that they love one another. So theoretically, Christians are supposed to be really good at this thing we call unity. But in practice, sometimes we can be the worst at it, right? Do you know how many different denominations, like Orthodox Christianity, how many denominations and families of churches there are around the globe? Forty? Very good. 42,000 and growing. 42,000? Are you serious? That's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot of people who all claim to worship the same God, but have lots of nuanced differences of beliefs and opinions, right? I'm going to throw a comic panel that I came across one day up on the screen. So this is a membership class, and at the front of the class, there's a teacher pointing to a, 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 um, a graph of all the churches and Christian movements throughout history from AD 1 all the way to the present time. And the teacher says to the class, so this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. (laughs) And then someone in the front row says, wow, Jesus is so lucky to have us. (laughs) It's funny, but like, we kind of do that, don't we? (laughs) Look, I love Foursquare. I love being in the family of Foursquare. There really isn't another denomination I'd rather be a part of. I love our movement. 
But I also don't believe for a second that we have a monopoly on the kingdom of God. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, we must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we understand that this work of peacemaking, it is impossible without you. So we depend fully on you, the power and presence of your Spirit. We depend on your love to teach us and to guide us and to transform us into the kind of people who can do the work that you have called us to do. So we ask this morning that we would answer the call, that we would rise to the challenge, and we would embrace your humble peacemaking. Reveal to us in your word how we do this. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So let's jump into the text and see how this story of Cain and Abel teaches us about how to live at peace with one another, or rather, what not to do when trying to live at peace with one another. This is the account of the first murder. It's heavy. It's discouraging. It's really heartbreaking. The story takes place when humanity is still very new to the earth, right? So Adam and Eve, they've sinned against God by listening to the serpent, and they've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So in order to keep perfection in paradise free of their um, rebellion and to keep that perfection intact, he banishes them from the garden. But because of their rebellion, life has now gone from being a reality of rest and peace to now being a, a reality of hardship and strife. And we come upon Adam and Eve as they have their first two children. We have Cain, who is the firstborn, and Abel, who is the secondborn. And although Adam and Eve have sinned against God, God has not fully abandoned them. He has clothed them to cover their shame. He's still in communication with them. And his family is still offering worship to God. And now Cain becomes a farmer and Abel becomes a shepherd. And it's interesting how important a role shepherds play in the narrative of the Bible. We'll get back to that. And the time has come for both of them to present their offerings to God as worship. So Abel brings the firstborn lambs of his flock for the season, and Cain brings the, the, some of his, what the Bible says, just some of his produce to God. Now there's some interesting themes in this story. If we remember, the original mandate of the garden for human beings was to rule over and have dominion over all the living things. And this is what a shepherd does. And the part of the curse after sin is to work the ground and to toil for food. So even in the setup to the story, we see one human, one son, Abel, who's associated with God's original intent for human beings, and then Cain, who's associated with the curse. Now this is not to say that shepherds are holier than farmers. If you're farmers, I'm sure you're very holy. But the author is helping us to connect some dots here thematically. And God is pleased with Abel's act of worship, but not Cain's. Now, it's not because one is an animal and one is, is produce. Notice that Abel brings the first lambs of his flock, but, Abel, or, but Cain just brings some of his produce, not the first of his produce. Because when he brings the first of his lambs, he acknowledges, you get the first, because everything that I have belongs to you anyway. But Cain brings his leftovers, and God is not pleased with this. Abel... He wants to worship God out of a desire to please God. But Cain, he's just trying to check a box. He's worshiping out of obligation. So we see what happens after this. The shepherd who pleases the Lord is killed 
by the one who is envious and angry. Much like another shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus, who is killed by those who are envious and angry that he has favor with God. Just like Cain, the Pharisees worship out of obligation and appearances, and the one who truly has love and a desire to please God is unjustly and violently killed. You see, there's this thematic thread that we can trace all throughout the scriptures, and it's that humans are meant to be different, set apart from the animals. And it's when we forget our humanity that we begin to behave more like animals. And that's when we sin against one another. Who was it that first caused human beings to fall into temptation in the garden? The serpent, who was an animal. But instead of Adam and Eve exercising their authority and dominion over this creature, they succumb to its deception. And it's then that God paints this picture of this ongoing struggle that's going to occur throughout the ages, that the serpent and the man will be in conflict, but that eventually, though the serpent will bite the heel of the man, the man will crush his head. Basically, mankind is always going to be in conflict with its animal-like desire and nature to sin. But one day, there will be a man who can defeat that desire, who can defeat that animal. Spoiler alert, that's Jesus. But one is meant to wonder when reading this story if the hero who defeats the serpent is supposed to be Cain, the firstborn. But no, Cain succumbs to the temptation of the enemy, that voice that whispers and tempts us to set aside our humanity. God warns Cain that sin is crouching at his door, waiting to pounce. It's this image of an animal that's stalking its prey, waiting for an opportunity to devour you. And he says, Cain, you need to rule over it. You need to have dominion over this temptation. There's always going to be this conflict within us to want to give in to that temptation of behaving like an animal, of bowing to our animal nature and instincts, when our heavenly mandate, our Eden mandate, is to look to Jesus to become fully human, to rule over the animal instincts, to rule over our fear, to have dominion over our inhuman desires. And this is really easy to see all around us, isn't it? (laughs) There are times where we forget what it is to be human, what it is to be humane towards one another. Whenever we feel threatened, whenever we get angry, we experience that flight or fight response, that instinct for survival that powerful desire which tempts us to preserve myself even at the expense of others. It's at those moments when we fail to recognize our humanity and the humanity in others that we behave in ways that are inhumane and we cause harm for our fellow man. C.S. Lewis, he wrote this book series called The Chronicles of Narnia for Children, right? And uh, in, this, in this series, um, we have four protagonists uh, they're all children, and they, they go through this magical wardrobe and find themselves in the land of Narnia, which is an allegory for our world. Narnia is Eden, Aslan, this lion, is Jesus, and uh, the boys and girls are known prophetically as the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. Well, in the second installment of this series, Prince Caspian, the four children have left Narnia, and very little time has passed for them, but a long time has passed in Narnia. And when they return, they see that things are very different. See, when they left, Aslan had defeated evil, had defeated the witch, and set everything right. But when Adam and Eve, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, forsake their mandate and they leave Narnia, it descends back into chaos. So Lucy, who's our youngest protagonist, they're walking through the forest with one of the guides from Narnia. 
And when she left, the animals were very friendly. All of the mythical creatures and the animals, they were sentient and they spoke and they had relationship with them. They fought alongside them. So when she sees a bear in the woods, she friendly waves to the bear and gestures to him. But then the bear charges at Lucy, intent on killing her. So her sister is forced to shoot an arrow and to kill the bear. Lucy's heartbroken. And she turns to the guide and she's confused and she asks why the bear didn't even seem to be able to speak. And the guide turns back to Lucy and says, you get treated like a dumb animal long enough. It's what you become. See, there's a scary thing that happens. When we act like animals, we aren't just behaving in ways that are inhuman. We are taking on the role of the adversary. Jesus calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. When Peter gets in Jesus' way and tries to contradict him, he says, get behind me, Satanas, adversary. We'll come back to Peter in a minute. But Paul refers to Jesus as the second Adam. Because for the first time since Genesis 1, Jesus showed us what it meant to be fully human, as we were intended to be. Not ruled by our animal instincts and by our temptation to sin, but fully divine and fully man, pulling together the dimensions of heaven and earth. He was showing us what it was like to truly steward creation the way that God had intended. If we look to the world around us, all the strife, all the war, the conflict, the hate, the suspicion, the brutal competition, the backstabbing and the betrayal, it's all indicative of where we fall short of our mandate as human beings to steward creation the way we were called to. We stop behaving like humans and we start behaving like animals. We have failed to rule over our desires, to have dominion over them, and so they lie in wait like an animal wanting to devour us and turn us against one another, brother against brother. Now, we live in very different times now. Cain was acting out of this very primal instinct to kill his brother physically. But we're a lot more creative now, aren't we? I don't need to kill you, but I can belittle you. I can dehumanize you. I can put you in a category in my mind which determines that you're not worth my time. I can dismiss you. I can be inhumane towards you. In Matthew 5, Jesus lets his followers know that hate or murder hardly makes a difference because the second that we take on the role of the adversary towards another image bearer of God, we become a murderer in our heart. Friends, this story is really grim and that's because life without Jesus is grim. Without Jesus, we will never be fully human. And that can be pretty grim. It can be discouraging to acknowledge this, but we have to remember that's not where the story ends. We're not stuck there. Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. When Jesus went to the cross, and when he rose again, he defeated sin and de defeated the grave. We now live in an era where we have access to that heavenly mandate to become fully human again, to create pockets of Eden wherever we go. And it's all possible. Even though we fall short of God's glory and his mandate for us, we can be who he's created us to be because of his grace for us. There is redemption for us. There is forgiveness for us. Without Jesus, we'll never be fully human, but with Jesus, he makes all things new. He makes everything new. Notice that after Cain has murdered his brother, he's fearful of what will happen when others find out about what he has done. But God shows mercy on him and gives him a mark of protection 
Because the natural human instinct is to seek vengeance. And Cain would have deserved it, right? He would have deserved vengeance. But God says, no, that's not how we're going to do things. We're not going to be agents of vengeance, but rather agents of mercy. The scholars, Alan Rose and John Oswald wrote this, Whenever it was, whatever it was, a visible mark or simply a symbol of God's protection, God was extending grace to Cain so that he could live on without fear. This is what we call common grace. Listen, guys, we've all royally messed this up. We have. But in Christ, we have permission to be reconciled. We don't have to live in fear. John writes in 1 John that perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. But if we are in Christ, we are in his love. So we don't have to live in fear if we embrace Christ's love. Jesus sets the stage for us to behave differently. We don't have a say when people behave inhumanely towards us, but we always have a choice in how we respond, right? We can react in fear, in self-preservation, stoop to being an animal, or we can respond in Christ's love, fully human. Abel was a shepherd who was killed by someone whom he loved, and the good shepherd, Jesus, would ultimately lay down his life for those whom he loved. And although Jesus would have been justified in his vengeance, and although he would have the power to strike down his enemies, he chose to love his enemies. He chose to die for the very people who were killing him. Friends, I think for us, repentance and humility, apologizing, asking for forgiveness, this is difficult for us. We don't like to apologize because it goes against our animal instincts for self-preservation. We feel that to admit our wrongdoing is to lose power. We're too ashamed. I can't bear the thought of having been wrong. There's a reason why our culture is so politically polarized. (laughs) Because we're unwilling to admit that the other side has a point. (laughs) So we get driven further and further and further into our echo chambers. Further into our own rightness. And we never move towards reconciliation. But when we choose to be fully human, as Christ is, we remember that God exalts the humble. That to be the first to offer reconciliation, the first to admit wrongdoing, friends, this is not weakness. It is the most profound strength that you cannot have apart from Christ. The more we fight against one another, the more we feel we need to justify ourselves, the more we need to prove that we were right. But the hope of the gospel, friends, is not about getting things right at the onset, because none of us do. The power of the gospel is in the ability for us to be redeemed and reconciled even after we have sinned. Without the love of God, we have no choice but to double down, to move further into anger and shame. But when the creator of the universe loves us and extends grace to us, we realize there's a different way back. We can come back home to the arms of a loving father. We can come back into the arms of relationship with one another. I heard about this story last week from a a congregant who will remain anonymous for privacy's sake. But they told me that in this last week, this vision of moving from fear to love has really come alive for them, and I was really moved by this story. I'll give you an abridged version. So this person is a small business owner and has a business property in Portland, and this this property borders a residential area, and there's hedges along this area that are very well kept, and he pays a lot of money to keep them that way. Well, one day, he's off-site, and he gets a call from a coworker that the woman, who is one of the neighbors, 
is sawing down his hedges. And he's very confused. He knows this woman. They have a rapport and a relationship. So he calls her. He texts her. There's no response. So he's confused and he's angry. Second day comes. She's back at it again. Hey, boss. She's sawing down more of the hedges. And now he's starting to really fume, right? So he comes in the third day and she's out there again. He's sawing. He's like, okay, this is my moment. And he moves to confront her. They get into aggressive negotiations. They are heated. He told me, I said some things that I'm not proud that I said, (laughs) I shouldn't have said. But he was angry, and he was justified. He's damaging his property, she's damaging his property. But he goes back after the altercation, sits down, takes a breath, and he prays. And he realizes, even though I was justified by the world, that's not how Jesus is wanting me to treat this person. So he goes back in humility. Now, the woman comes out, dukes up, ready to go for round two. Husband comes out the door this time, big dude, and he's a little scared, and he says, I want to apologize. Things got pretty intense back there. We both said things we probably shouldn't have, and I just want to say I'm sorry. I don't want to treat you that way. I want to figure this out with you. Come to find out, this couple, they were remembering a very difficult anniversary that day the two-year anniversary of their son being shot and killed in Portland. What was happening was that there were people that were using drugs and committing crimes behind these hedges. So the woman was sawing down these hedges because she wanted to be able to see into the yard so she could protect her family. He would never have known. He would never have known if he didn't take a moment to remember who God had created him to be. To remember that he had an option not to succumb to fear, not to succumb to self-preservation, not to anxiously react to the situation, but to move as a human being towards another human being, an image bearer of God, and remember that he is called to love everyone, including those who are actively against him. And in that moment that he discovered that behind all of that anger, behind all of that offensive action, there was pain. This is why, this is why we never know. You never know what is behind someone's anger, what is behind someone's hate. We move towards love, even if they don't deserve it. The prophet Isaiah paints this beautiful picture of what it is like to follow God through the narrative of history. He writes, He will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples, They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up sword against nation and they will never again train for war. The way of Jesus is different. The way of Jesus takes our power that we have the right to use and it turns it into healing. It turns it into service. Fast forward to the Garden of Gethsemane where Judas has betrayed Jesus, has guided the religious leaders and a mob of armed people to arrest Jesus. And Peter, three of the Gospels leave out that was Peter, but John says it was Peter. Peter takes a sword and tries to cut off the head of one of the servants. He misses and he cleaves off his ear. And Jesus says, Peter, those who live by the sword, die by the sword. 
Will I not fulfill what God has sent me to do? Peter, do you remember who I am? Is this really going to get in my way? And he looks to the mob who's assembled with all these weapons ready to have violence against Jesus if they need to. And Jesus is like, you don't get what's going to happen here, do you? I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to kill you, even though I could. I'm going to die for you. Jesus died for the very people who arrested and killed him. The pathway to peace, the pathway to shalom, to harmony between us and God and between one another is to give one's life for those we love, including our enemies. We don't resist one another out of insecurity. Sometimes we have to take the hits that we don't deserve and trust Jesus with our peace. When people say things to you that aren't true, but they hurt like they are, when people fight unfairly, when people throw spears, when you're trying to drop your stone, by the strength of the Spirit, you will have the ability to refuse to give into that temptation, to have dominion over your anger that is lurking at your door, and be one of God's children. I wish I was always as as good at doing it as I am at preaching it. But even when we fail, even when we fail, even when we hurt those whom God loves, there's redemption for us. There's forgiveness for us. The story doesn't end with our failure. It ends with Christ's victory. We don't need to be afraid of making peace. I know it can be scary. I know it can be uncomfortable. Every instinct inside of us does not like to move towards reconciliation, and that's why we need Jesus to do it. The second Adam, who was fully human, to remind us of what it's like to actually be who we were intended to be. We don't fight fire with fire. It baffles me how continually Jesus extends a hand of mercy, a gesture of peace, extends his love and his grace to people who flat out reject him and betray him because he loves everyone with the same sacrificial passion, including his enemies. We talked about how Judas Judas betrayed Jesus, how Peter cut off that guy's ear. What's wild is just a few hours earlier, Jesus was with all of his disciples in an upper room, including Judas, who would betray him. This man who had loved him for three years, this man who Jesus had given him everything, this man was going to betray him for money. And Peter, who was his right-hand man, who was said, I'm going to be with you through thick and thin, who's going to deny him three times publicly, he's with them in the upper room. And Jesus does something astonishing. He takes off his robe and he humbles himself like a servant and he begins to wash the feet of his betrayers. He washed Judas's feet. We can put that image on the screen. He washed Judas's feet. He washed Peter's feet. This reality baffles me, and it's forced me to accept that on the night Jesus was betrayed, it does not matter who would have been sitting in that chair. He would have washed their feet. Because that's how radically Jesus loves. I'm not there yet, friends. (laughs) I want to be, but Christ is still working on me. There are certain people, it's hard for me to see them in that chair. It's hard for me to imagine Jesus loving them so affectionately, humbling himself to serve them, knowing that they'll reject him. So my question is, who is that for you? We're going to begin showing these slides, and we're going to linger about 10 seconds on each image. Who is it for you? Who in your heart of hearts 
do you know it's hard for you to accept that Jesus would humble himself and die for them? And here's the thing. By serving them, by washing their feet, he wasn't condoning their behavior. He wasn't endorsing their sin. He wasn't giving approval for their poor choices. He was simply extending his love and his grace regardless of whether or not they would choose to accept it. So who do we other? Who do we demonize? Who do we gossip about? Who do we on the outside, we extend niceties, but on the inside we secretly hope for their demise? Because friends, on the night Jesus was betrayed, whoever you want to put in that chair, he would have washed their feet. And I want you to know this is not easy. In fact, it's impossible. It's impossible to have this kind of mercy without the Holy Spirit, without the love of Jesus. Only he is capable of taking this heart of stone and making it a heart of flesh. Only he is possible of taking this man who chooses to behave like an animal and making him fully human again. We can't do it without him. We can't do it without him. I'm going to invite us to take some time to pray. Because this is a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. And this is definitely something that is easier said than done. But friends, what a hope. In a world that is not interested in this, what hope will this be for our community? Friends, as we head into 2024 and move into what will be another really difficult election year, are we going to be different? Are we going to behave like the world? Are we going to behave like animals, trying to preserve ourselves at the expense of others, trying to other people, trying to demonize people? Or are we going to move out of that fear and step into Christ's love. Because friends, that is what he wants for us. Go ahead and leave that image on the screen. That's what he wants for us. So I'm going to pray for us, and then I just want you to sit silently, and I want you to talk to Jesus. Allow him to convict you. Allow him to comfort you. Allow him to guide you in what reconciliation will look like. And after that moment is concluded, I will guide us through communion. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fall in this place. Holy Spirit, come. We can't do this apart from you. Your gospel is impossible without your power and your love. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would indwell us, that you would give us what we need for the task at hand, that we'd find ourselves in a place where we can extend the same love that you've extended to us. Lord, may we not turn brother against brother. May we be unified. May we be reconciled.